welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Pastor Tim, it is good to be with you once again in this penultimate lecture, and uh, we will be moving into uh, some current debates and questions within the church. So we just finished considering in some detail, maybe not as much as we could have gone into, but but, uh, hopefully enough detail. Um, some of the cultural issues of this day and age surrounding sexual orientation and gender identity, and I use those words just because they're uh, commonly used. Uh, I, I made, if you have listened to those past lectures, I've made some distinctions about both those terms, and, and perhaps especially with sexual orientation, I, I do not feel that that is the best language to use. Uh, nevertheless, as we move now into uh, some issues to do with the church. We're going to deal with what is commonly called uh, women in ministry. But once again, we may have some quibble about that term because women indeed are not only valuable, but crucial in Christian ministry in general and in the ministry of the church in particular. The, the issue, the question which really presents itself and which the modern evangelical church is dealing with at present, and I believe capitulating upon, is the question of whether women ought to rule and to teach in the church. Whether women ought to rule and to teach within the church. So the idea of even of leadership, if we were to talk about women in leadership, even that is, I would argue, too broad. Uh, Although there may be all sorts of questions around uh, women in leadership and where there may be lines that ought to be drawn, and and we may need to navigate those things, those 
those questions, and, and we may even deal with some of those in the Q&A time afterwards. Where are some of those lines? Uh, for instance, when it comes to women who are leading worship, when it comes to uh, whether women may be Sunday school teachers and, and across all ages, uh, what about mixed small groups? So there may be some other things that we're going to talk about but or that we could talk about, but I'm going to, in the main, deal with what I think is the primary issue, um, which is whether a woman may be uh, an elder of a church and so have that position of ruling or teaching and preaching a mixed group in the church or specifically the office of teaching elder or pastor, depending on your uh, tradition or denomination. So as we navigate this question, we're going to deal firstly with some foundational ideas. We're going to talk about the comprehensiveness of the vision of sex and gender that we have been unpacking over these last few weeks and how that informs this question. And then we're going to talk about also how uh, the matters that are here upon this earth relative to things like marriage and the church, how those image divine, heavenly, or even eternal truths and how that comes into play in answering this question. Then we're going to go through a very brief scriptural overview and then deal with, a, with two specific passages. There are, there are many others we could deal with. I can think of at least one uh, passage in, in um, or maybe two in, in 1 Corinthians that would be certainly very useful to look at this evening that we're not going to be, but I'm, we're going to take a look at a couple of passages. And then I'll deal finally, albeit briefly, with the cultural sort of progression argument uh, and deal with an analog that is often used to argue for women as, as pastors. And that's the, uh, the parallel with slavery. And I'm going to make some comments about that. Probably not enough, but uh, briefly address it. So firstly, uh, as with any of these modern challenges that we are concerned with, whether it's as we dealt with, you know, with uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, or whether it's the issue of women as ruling or, or teaching in the church, uh, we are greatly helped once we build the foundations of sex and gender, as we've been trying to do over these last number of weeks. So for instance, we've, we've dealt with the issue of um, the fact that male and female and how God created us is not only a binary, but it is dyadic. And by that, we meant that male and female face one another in an exclusive complementarity. And so as we unpacked what that looked like and how it is that God images himself and his strengths differentially in male and female, we developed a couple of triads. You could perhaps um, summarize these by saying that men image the initiation of God, and you perhaps could link this up even in particular with God the Father, whereas women image the recipiency of uh, particularly God the Son. So even if you think in a more general way of God as both the blesser of all things, but also blessed, uh, you might get at some of this distinction that is uh, that we were trying to get at. But we our triad for males was promote, protect, provide. Our 
triad for, for women and females were that they evidenced the resplendency, the rest, and the responsiveness of God. Now, there was certainly variability in these things within the genders, and these are all strengths or, or virtues that exist within God. And so wherever they exist in male or female, they are good. So, you know, if there is a, let's say, a man who is particularly se uh, sensitive and responsive in that way, that is a good thing. Uh, you would never, you know, uh, some, uh, single somebody out, out and, and, uh, and condemn them for being responsive as, as a male. That's a, that's a good thing. So there's, there is some, some variability both within genders and across genders when it comes to these matters. But what is important to understand is that God created male and female to image himself upon the earth to face one another with these strengths and these exclusive uh, and these complementary, sorry, these, these complementary uh, strengths. I won't use the word exclusive there. Um, and that these roles are not interchangeable. They're not inter interchangeable. This is why, of course, um, one of the reasons why we rule out, why this vision of sex and gender biblically rules out uh, gay marriage. These, these roles are not interchangeable. Male and female are not interchangeable. So this comprehensive view of male and female, sorry, this, this view of male and female is part of a comprehensive vision then of how male and female interact within not just themselves, but with one another in society, in the church, in families, as mothers and fathers. It's all interrelated. We cannot deal, as I know some egalitarians would like to do, we cannot deal with church matters as completely separate or distinct from the life of the family. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we are told that elders must be heads of houses that manage their households well. If you can't manage your own household, how can you manage the household of God? So there you have a clear vision of the, the, the authority of the father within the home and that and even, if, and even if you would disagree with that, you still have this connection between the home and the church that is indisputable. You may recall Christ's instructions to his disciples that none of them were to be called father, as even in their apostolic role. That's, that's, that's interesting because... It's one of those statements that has as a presupposition the idea that that might be possible, such that there is a connection, an inherent connection between this role of that a father would have in a home in providing and protecting and promoting and that same role within the church, such that, you know, and, and the Apostle Paul uses this kind of language where I was, I was like a father to you. Um, so there's a, there's a comprehensive view here within the biblical vision of sex and gender that all these things are 
are, are linked together. You cannot deal you know, piecemeal with the question of whether uh, the father should have headship within the home and then separately, completely distinct from that, completely separately the issue of, of whether uh, males should only be elders uh, and, and pastors within the church. They're, they're linked to these ideas. The second foundational idea that we need to consider is the fact that uh, there is the imaging of eternal and heavenly truths in the, in the earthly ones that we, that we find here, both in marriage and in the church. So you can turn with me to a passage that is maybe quite well known to you, but it is good once again to refresh ourselves to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And in verse 22 and following, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, the, of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And we could keep going, but I just want to refer you to, the, to verse 32, which says, once again, if it wasn't clear enough, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so, we are not, there, there is in Scripture this inseparable link between Christ's relationship to the church and how that is imaged in the relationship between a, a husband and his wife. And so just as one is not free to remove or change or interchange the order of Christ and the church such that perhaps the church and, and Christ could be just kind of co-heads. Or that you might flip those around completely. Maybe Christ could be the head and, or sorry, that the church could be the head and Christ could, could submit. I mean, the entire idea is, is heretical. And we ought to have a similar perspective, although, you know, we, we maybe not quite as strong, but at the same time, you're, you're messing with scripture if you think that you, you can change how these things are imaged on the earth in marriage, and this is also the case for the church. So when you have these, this foundation laid when it comes to your doctrine of sex and gender, you have a, a good overview then of how to deal with uh, the matters of the church. So for instance, when it comes to teachers, what are you doing as a teacher in the church, as a preacher in the church, as a pastor? Well, among other things, you are providing, protecting, and promoting the people. And so you are replicating that role, that authoritative role that Christ has with the church and with the father, and a father has, or that a husband has with his wife and his, and his family, and you're replicating that in the church. Again, this isn't surprising to us because when it comes to what we might call hierarchy within spheres of, of this world, God 
tends to use the same principles that are grounded and rooted in his very life internally. And in fact, many of these same principles would uh, would bear out in other areas of even, for instance, how is a ruler to rule? So the area of politics. Um, how, is it, how is an employer to treat his, his employees? It's, this, it's the same principles because it's based on God and how God uses his authority in a good way to bless and not to subject uh, or to use for his own desires alone. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis, coming back to this idea of uh, imaging the, the heavenly realities, this is actually C.S. Lewis's point when he argues against what he calls priestesses in the church, because that's Church of England language, uh, in, his, uh, in his essay. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to read it. C.S. Lewis has a great uh, essay. I think it's, it might just be called Priestesses in the Church. I, I may or may not be quite correct in that. But he argues with the, just the, the idea that you're not free to, to switch up these eternal realities. And so because of that, you're not free to mess around with the imaging of these things on the, uh, on the earth. And the priest or pastor is to image God in a special, uh, a special way within the church. So what we find, if we now move to a scriptural overview, uh, is that you have male leadership throughout the entire scriptures. Why? Well, because of these foundational realities. Male leadership in the church is everywhere prescribed and assumed. Um, the patriarchs were men. The elders of Israel were all men. The priests and kings of Israel were all men. Now, when you get into the, the, uh, the role of prophet, things are maybe a little bit a little bit trickier because there were prophetesses both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but even there, distinctions ought to be made. First of all, there is no prophetic book that is written by a woman. Uh, but there are also, a, a, as far as I know, there is no uh, situation, well, hmm. Okay, you can, you can, I'm going to give this to you and tentatively, and you can, you can come and tell me if I'm wrong on this. I don't think that there is any place in which a priestess rebukes a, a king or a priest like, like a male prophet does. I don't think there is any occasion of that in Scripture. Um, so there's, when it comes to these, uh, this uh, sort of this authoritative prophet role. I would argue that even that is reserved for men only. In the New Testament, Jesus appointed 12 men to be apostles. He gave a very high place to women in his life and ministry. Such a high place that we, one gets the impression that there were people around him that wondered at what he was doing. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to mess with social convention. Uh, and yet, there were 12 male apostles. In the vision of heaven, you have 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and 24 elders. They are all male, or at least masculine, as the, the 24 elders may be angelic beings that kind of represent the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Now, there are exceptions 
here and there in the scriptures. And the clearest one that comes to mind is that of Deborah, a judge in Israel. Um, but what one notes when you read the accounts <coughs> with even just a modicum of, uh, of carefulness is that she is represented as an exception. That is to say that the text itself tells you that thing is that that this fact that Deborah is the judge of Israel is not the is not as things ought to be. Deborah is a hero, but the whole narrative represents Israel as lacking strong male leadership, as evidenced by the fact that even the commander of the army won't go out to battle unless Deborah goes with him. So clearly, even if you didn't see the fact that Deborah as the, you know, the judge, even if you didn't initially in the narrative see that as problematic, it becomes clear later on in the narrative that things are not as they should be within Israel at that time. So the entire tenor of scripture would, um, would show that when it comes to authority, whether it's ruling, whether it's kind of preaching, teaching, or you would say perhaps the offices of God's people, that these are reserved for men. Now let's consider a few specific passages. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 11, even though if we were to read from earlier on, it would certainly be useful. But I'll, I'll, uh, I'll keep to verse 11 and following. 1 Timothy 2.11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there's a few things to note here of importance. First of all, there is debate even within, I think, the realm of solid orthodoxy, whether or not a woman may speak within the congregation. There are some denominations that will, uh, that will say that a, a woman should not speak within the congregation, and that this would mean things like praying within the congregation, uh, prophesying within the congregation, um, leading worship within the congregation, etc. Uh, I do believe that that's within Christian orthodoxy. Uh, I also believe it's within Christian orthodoxy that uh, that this that what Paul says here, and there's a similar passage in First Corinthians, uh, that it is not a a complete moratorium on all speaking within the church, but on authoritative speaking. And the reason that that is, um, that I, that would be my perspective, uh, is because of 1 Corinthians 11, where a woman is permitted to prophesy, but with her head covered. And the early church father, Tertullian, um, he, I mean, he was pretty early in the tradition in the early church, and he, he argued similarly. He, he stated that, yes, a woman should not 
preach or teach, but they may prophesy with their head covered. Uh, and that is the view that I would I would take as well. And so then that you start to then take that into account when it may come to other roles that a woman may play within the congregation. Does it is it more like this this prophecy that would then thereafter be judged? And I believe that that would have been by men only. Or is it more like um, this authoritative preaching, teaching, which was uh, prohibited very clearly. Uh, a few other things to note here, though, and perhaps even more important than that discussion, is the fact that Paul grounds his argument in creation. You see that? That is crucial to note. Because what it means is that if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you believe that the Holy Spirit led Paul to connect his current teaching back to the fall and, and, and creation and those first few chapters, and that that connection is inspired. So what, that, what does that mean? That means that you are free to not like what Paul says, but you are not free to disagree with the fact that his statement that he does not permit a woman to teach is rooted in the fact that, that Adam was formed first, not Eve, and that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And I'm just reading the passage here. Obviously, there is an important sense in which Adam was deceived. And in fact, so much so that uh, although deceived, might, there might be a specific connotation here to deceived. Uh, but the, the issue, of course, that we would understand is that all of sin and original sin of the entire you know, human race thereafter actually hangs on Adam and not Eve. So we understand that. Um, Paul's very clear about that in other places. Nevertheless, Paul, I'm going to use this word. I think it's an important word. Um, there might be other words you could use for this, but I, I find this helpful. He tethers his argument, his New Testament argument, in the Old Testament. All right? He, he takes a look back some 4,000 years, and he says, what happened 4,000 years ago is programmatic to how we understand the life of the church today. Now, hopefully, you're beginning to see how that informs us now, 2,000 years later, right, when you see this. Now, just a quick word about verse 15. Uh, every once in a while, uh, somebody will throw up a smoke screen and say something like this. Uh, you know, verse 15 is... You know, it, it's, it's a difficult verse. You know, who knows what verse 15 is saying? It's so challenging. And so this really, it, it kind of casts doubt on you know, whether they say it like this or not. It kind of casts doubt on the rest of what's clear in the passage. So let, let, me, let me take just a second and make a comment about verse 15. Because the passage is, yes, it's difficult, but you might say, you might put it this way, it's so difficult that we know clearly what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that men are saved by faith, but women are saved by works. It cannot mean that women have eternal salvation by bearing children. By, you know, that the first time they, they have a child, they're, okay, they're in, they're into heaven. They're, you know, they're guaranteed to be saved. Clearly, that is not what it means. So once you rule out what it, what it cannot possibly mean, you're left with some things that, that you know, almost certainly Paul does mean, which is that in this 
ongoing work of salvation seen from not just that entrance into eternal life, not just that, that regeneration, that faith, that entrance, what we'd often refer to as justification, but rather as we see the whole picture of salvation, which, which includes the sanctification, that ongoing work that we actually join in with God, that we might persevere to the end and be saved, that that, normatively for women, is within the situation of childbearing, which has this wonderfully sanctifying work within her life. And so that is how, again, in most women's situation, and that is changing these days, of course, but uh, this is how throughout history, God has chosen normatively to work with women and to develop them and sanctify them for that, uh, that final salvation. So let's take, let's take a look at one other passage here. Oh, uh, let's, uh, first of all, let's do a quick look here at 1 Peter 3, 5, because I want you to see, even though uh, it is not talking about the church in particular. I want you to see this same principle of tethering in 1 Peter 3, 5. 1 Peter 3, verse 5. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. And then here's the tethering. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, Peter says, listen, this is, this is how women should make themselves beautiful, sort of predominantly, ultimately. I do not believe he is saying that no woman should ever wear gold jewelry, braid her hair, or, or, well, it's pretty clear because it says, or the clothes you wear, right? But the, the point here is that the greater adorning is the hidden person of the heart and the perishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, verse 4. Uh, and he grounds this. He says, this, this has always been the case with women. And the reason we know that is look back to, and he tethers his argument in the relationship of Sarah and Abraham. All right? Now, do I think that Women have to call their husbands Lord. Uh, no, I don't. I think that there's some con cultural um, options there. <laughs> but I do believe that the respect uh, that is seen in Sarah, that obedience, that submission that is there uh, is, is what is necessary. And of course, there are than subsequent and opposite responsibilities that the male has that we saw in Ephesians 5, to sacrifice, um, to sanctify, etc. So that was the example of another example of tethering. I want you now to turn with me to Romans chapter 16. And I want you to note verse 7, which says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Might seem like a very small verse, much ado about nothing, perhaps. What you know? What's what's going on here? Why is this uh, verse important or controversial? Well, egalitarians have seized upon the word junia here, and in, and in fact, this entire verse. 
They've argued a couple of things. First of all, that this word junia is a female name. Uh, we actually don't have a lot of attestation in all of um, the literature from that time. Junia is is female name. Uh, it could be. It could actually be Junius as well, uh, as far as the text. I'd have to go back to that and, and uh, consider that. But there are people that would argue it's actually Junius. People that would argue it's Junia. Um, it says that, uh, that they are well known to the apostles, and some have seized on that phrase and argued that it could be translated and should be translated that they are well known apostles. So here you've got an argument that you've got a woman who is called a well-known apostle. A woman who is called a well-known apostle. Now, here's a couple of things we need to consider with this argument. Uh, the first is that it is possible that it should be Junius and not Junia. It's, it's, it's more likely that it should be Junia and not Junius, but it's not a, it's not a certainty. All right? Second, second of all, I think it's quite unlikely that this phrase should be translated as that they are well-known apostles rather than well-known among the apostles. I believe that the, you know, what we find in scripture would, uh, and who is named as an apostles, would make it somewhat unlikely that there was somebody at the time who could be called a well-known apostle that we have, we have no other uh, reference to throughout the entire scriptures. I think that would be unlikely. Um, but the other thing that is, that is important here to note is that uh, apostle is not always an official term. It can mean messenger. And so you could still have the fact that Junia is uh, a woman. You could still have the fact that even if you would argue that she is a well-known rather than is well-known to but the fact that this apostle, this term apostle, is actually not an, it's not an office. It's simply referring to a messenger, much like we would ha have even perhaps like a missionary these days. So those are a couple of passages that are sometimes uh, misused, misunderstood. First of all, and, and I want to deal with this just very briefly, but I also want to mention the argument that is sometimes made concerning the analog of slavery. The, the argument goes like this, that just as within the scriptures, slavery is permitted or sanctioned, and yet we now know it is wrong, and we, 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 we would not sanction slavery, so too, in another matter of, an equal, of inequality, so too, even though the scriptures uh, sanction male-only ruling and teaching, we now know that that is inequality, that is wrong. We've progressed in a similar way as on the slavery issue, and we now know that that should not be. Right? So let me make some comments about that uh, argument. The first is it actually very much misunderstands and flattens the, the idea of slavery in scripture, that you have within the Old Testament something that is very different than chattel slavery as it was practiced in, for instance, in the southern states, um, you know, just a couple centuries ago. The uh, 
in the Old Testament, you have something that is, even though it's called slavery, it's probably better to refer to it as indentured servitude. Um, that there were extensive uh, pieces of leg legislation, protections when it came to slaves, and that this institution was a good institution in light of mankind's sin, and that I believe, and this is maybe a controversial statement, but I've, I've backed this up in, at least on a couple of occasions in sermons, I'd be happy to back this up if I, if I had to in public. Uh, I believe that there are places even today that would benefit. So ruined is their society. So desperate is their plight in some places that they would actually benefit from Old Testament style indentured servitude. Okay. I, I think I could back that up. Um, now, when it comes to slavery as practiced in the New Testament, you've got a couple of things that are different. On one hand, you've got the fact that you do have, uh, you don't have it, you know, a, a theocracy. You've got a, you know, Greco-Roman society and an entire economic system based upon slavery. But even there, that kind of slavery was not nearly as, uh, as poor, as terrible, as evil, although evils did occur, by, absolutely, uh, as what was practiced uh, in, with chattel slavery around the world and by, by Western nations, perhaps especially the United States and the South. But then you also have the fact that Paul says, listen, you can, you know, if you can gain your, your freedom, do so. And so you've got these, these initial... Um, seed thoughts that this is not something that's sanctioned. It's sort of something rather that is permitted and we need to live within in that society at time, at the time. So the analog with slavery really is one that, that doesn't hold. Um, never, and, and more than that, it doesn't take into account the tethering principles that we saw in places like 1 Timothy and 1 Peter. So, um, much more could be said, but in the end, that kind of principle, what it does is it destroys the idea of sola scriptura. Destro destroys the idea that in scripture we find um, everything that we need. It is plain. It is sufficient. It is once for all. And, you know, the idea that, you know, now through modern fem feminism, we have discovered the right way of reading the text that, you know, for two th almost 2,000 years, we got wrong. Uh, you've, you've, got some, you've got some problematic hermeneutics in place to argue that. We, uh, you're in a good place if you are interacting with, you know, the history of the tr tradition throughout history. If you can read the Bible plainly and apply it plainly. There are some issues that are difficult, but there are issues that are difficult only because of the pressures of the culture. And we need to hold fast to God's word. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at 
admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.